Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Judges 3. Judges chapter 3. It's page 235 in the Pew Bible. Page 235. Judges chapter 3. We're going to be reading from verse 7 through 12. Judges 3, 7 through 12. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the hand had peace for the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Canaz, died. Once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Thank you, Lenny. Well, it was a brilliant idea. They built a wooden horse, and they set it outside the city, outside the city of Troy, this city which they had not been able to capture no matter what they tried. So they set this wooden horse outside the city as a a gift, as a sign of truce, as a sign of peace. Uh, and sure enough, uh, the, uh, the, the, the city folks, they, they took it in, they, they, they took the bait, and what they didn't realize, of course, was that these Greek soldiers were inside the horse, and so they were letting uh, their enemy into their walls, and uh, they were letting him in, and when they got in, right, then nightfall came, something like that, and, and then the, the Greek soldiers climbed out and opened up the gate and allowed their forces in and, and sacked the city of Troy. Uh, we, we've all heard this famous story of, of the Trojan horse. It's been retold in a lot of different books and in different movies. You, you find different versions of the story. My favorite version of it is in Monty Python's The Search for the Holy Grail. And in that version, there's a little bit of a twist on the, on the story. If I'm remembering correctly, they, they build the wooden horse and they set it outside the city uh, and, and then they run and they hide in the bushes uh, to watch to see if they take the bait. And sure enough, their enemy takes the bait, opens their gates, brings the, the horse in, and, and they close the gates, and, and they're all sitting in the bushes watching, so excited that this has worked. And then one of the soldiers, he, he kind of whispers to his leader, he says, well, what do we do now? And the leader says, well, at nightfall when it's dark, we crawl out of the horse, and we open up the gates, and we let everybody in. And then there's that moment where they realize that they forgot to climb in the horse. Now, as ridiculous as that story sounds, it really shouldn't surprise us because we are forgetful people. We are forgetful people. We forget all kinds of things. We forget 
birthdays, we forget anniversaries, we forget our keys, we forget to pick our kids up from school. Uh, I, I actually, I, I knew some folks at my last church, it seemed like once a month we had to call them after church and, and remind them they forgot to take their kids home. I don't know, they, like, they came in separate cars and always thought somebody else had, and once a month we'd have to call and say, you forgot to bring your kids home, right? We, we forget everything. We are an incredibly forgetful people. But what does it mean to forget God? What does it mean to forget God? Verse 7 here, the beginning of this passage, says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. The last several weeks we've been in a series called Jesus 101 where we've been looking at the I am statements in the Gospel of John, and we've just been asking this question, who is Jesus? And we're taking a detour from that today, uh, although this, this passage actually, as we're going to see, it actually will ultimately tell us something about Jesus. Uh, this passage is, again, from the book of Judges, and the book of Judges chronicles uh, the, the story of the people of Israel from the death of Joshua to the rise of Samuel and King Saul. It chronicles of a period of approximately 200 years, somewhere between the the 13th and 11th centuries B.C. And what you find as you read through the book of Judges is that over and over again, we find that the people of God continually forget God. So again, what does it mean to forget God? Well, it tells us right here in verse 7. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, who were the Baals and the Asherahs? Uh, Baal was the, the main god of the Canaanites. Uh, Canaanites were people, one of the many peoples that surrounded the people of Israel in this period. And Asherah was Baal's female consort god. And uh, so it, it seems that to forget, to forget God is to serve ancient Canaanite gods. Well, I think we should probably be okay, don't you think? I mean, I guess this just means that after church we should all go home and and, and grow, go through our room and go through our, our garage and clear out all of those statues, those stone statues that we have carved to Baal and Asherah, right? If we just clear those out, then we'll be fine. You see, we could read a passage like this and very easily think, what on earth does this possibly have to do with me living in the 21st century? But as we unpack a little bit of what Canaanite worship was like, I think we'll realize that, that maybe things aren't all that, all that different. Now, what was it that was so attractive about Canaanite worship? And actually, what you find as you read through the Old Testament, uh, that Canaanite worship was, was rampant within the people of Israel. One of the things that people in the ancient Near East would do is they would often name their children after the God that they worshipped. So you have names like Jehoshaphat and Jehoash, and these are, are names that come from the God Jehovah, the Israelite God. That was a name that, that an Israelite might give their children. But what's, what's interesting is you have, for example, King Saul, whose original name was Ishbael, named after Baal. And actually, if you go through the list of the kings of Israel, uh, what you discover is that twice as many of their children were named after Baal as after Yahweh or Jehovah. So we see that Israel or that Canaanite worship was rampant within the people of Israel. Why was it? What was so attractive? about Canaanite worship. I'm just going to tell you three things about Canaanite worship. First of all, it was incredibly exciting. 
Uh, I guess that's the word to use. I'm not sure what use, word to use here. When you would go to a Canaanite shrine, you would be greeted with a prostitute, and you would be given a heavy amount of alcohol to drink. Uh, this was just part of the worship service. I mean, talk about a way to get attendance up, right? I mean, they, they would go. This was, this was what worship was like, Canaanite worship. It was, it was exciting. And, and in addition to this, uh, there was a great appreciation of art. Canaanite shrines were beautifully adorned. They had great artists working, doing sculpture and, and whatnot, and it was a beautiful place to come. Uh, finally, Canaanite worship, well, it was kind of the hip thing to do. Everybody cool was doing it, especially in the period of the kings, uh, the city of Tyre, which is just north of, of Israel, was kind of like the cool, hip uh, place to live. You know, the kids growing up, they'd go, hey, mom, I want to move to Tyre when I get older. I don't know if they actually said that, but, but it was kind of the cool place to be. It was, uh, it was a, an international uh, trading center, uh, so all of the, the new cool things were coming in and out of there. And, of course, in Tyre, everybody worshipped Baal. Everybody worshipped the Canaanite gods. So if you wanted to be cool, if you wanted to be in, well, then you would worship Baal. So we realize things really aren't all that different, that if you take all of this and you, and you kind of unpack it, what you come to realize is that what it means to forget God is to turn to anything else as your ultimate source of joy and identity and fulfillment. That's what they were doing. To forget God is to turn away from anything, or excuse me, turn away from God and to turn to anything as your ultimate joy and satisfaction and contentment and identity. This is what idol worship is all about. An idol is anything that you say, I can't live without that. I shared this illustration before, in, in, Jim Campoli knows where I'm going on this. In the movie Spaceballs, Lone Star uh, goes to rescue Princess Vespa. And he rescues Princess Vespa, and there, his, his, his Winnebago, flying Winnebago, crashes on a... Sorry, I'm sharing this with you. Crashes on this lone desert island, and, and there, or desert planet, excuse me. And, and so they have to you know, walk you know, a bunch of miles to, to get away from the crashed ship. And, and Lone Star tells everybody on the, on the ship, he says... Take only what you need to survive. And then a scene later, you see Lone Star carrying all of this luggage for Princess Vespa. And there's this one huge, huge uh, piece of luggage. And finally, he just gets so frustrated that he throws it on the ground and he opens it up. And he pulls out this you know, five-foot-long, uh, two-foot-wide hair dryer. And he looks at her, and, and she gets this kind of you know, princess attitude in her. And she says, it's my industrial-strength hair dryer. And I can't live without it. You see, that's what an idol is. An idol is anything that you can't live without it. So my question for you is, what is your industrial strength hairdryer? What is it in your life? What is it that thing? There's nothing wrong with hairdryers. Nothing wrong with industrial strength hairdryers. They're not intrinsically evil. But when it becomes that thing that you can't live without, that thing where you would forsake anything else to have it, that's when it becomes an idol. So, so what is it for you? What is it in your own life? It could be something good. It could be your career. It could be your family. Uh, it could be a hobby. It could be, there. it could be just about anything that at the end of the day you say, that's, that's what I can't live without. And, and this is what it means to forget God. It's to turn to something else for your ultimate source of identity, your ultimate source of fulfillment. So they forget God. Verse 8, 
the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim. Can we just give Lenny a, a big hand for reading this passage? That was, that was impressive. <clears throat> I, I, I won't get this right. I'm going to try to skim over it. Sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim. Something like that. Now, this is one of these verses, one of these passages in the Bible where you, I think we look at it and we say, okay, this, see, this is the kind of thing that bothers me about the Bible and bothers me about the God of the Old Testament. What, what is he doing? God's anger burns against them and, and he, 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 he forces them into this subjection. He allows these people to conquer them and, and to put them into some form of, of slavery. He allows them to go into captivity. Why? Why would God do that? I remember when I was in seminary, a friend of mine and I, we would go to this little pizza place called, I think it was called the River Riverview or something like that. Every Thursday night, we'd go there for pizza. And it was about a 15, 20-minute drive. He was a big Bob Dylan fan, and he loved to play his harmonica while listening to Bob Dylan. And, and so we would, we'd, we'd both take harmonicas, and we would jam out to Bob Dylan on the way to Have you ever tried this? It's actually really fun. Uh, and it, you don't have to be a good harmonica player because Bob Dylan isn't either, so I don't think he would mind. Anyway, so we would, we would drive to the Riverview uh, listening to Bob Dylan. This was kind of our little ritual. And we'd go and we'd sit down, and, and there was this particular waitress that we started to get to know. Her name was Jackie. And she came to, to understand that we were uh, seminary students preparing for ministry. And so I don't think she went to church, so I think she kind of felt like maybe we were her church. So she'd come all the time and, and sit down a little bit longer than waitresses probably should, right? And would just talk to us. And I remember one time she, she came and she slapped our pepperoni pizza down on the table. And she said, you've got to pray for my son. She said, you've got to pray for my son because he is getting himself into all kinds of trouble. He, he just got arrested. She said, I, I think he's going to end up in prison. And then she said the most remarkable thing. She said, you know what? I actually think that might be the best thing for Sometimes I think the best thing would be for him to go to prison so that he would wake up and realize what he's doing with his life. See, what this waitress Jackie realized is that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you realize your need for help. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you will cry out. <clears throat> I shared with you a story of my friend Danny Ortley who played a concert here last year. I shared a story about him last year or last week, a couple weeks ago, and made fun of him. Now I'm going to share another story which puts him in a little more favorable light. But he wrote a song for his, <clears throat> his son Jack. And as he was thinking about his son Jack, he realized, he said, you know, as parents, uh, what we want more than anything for our children is simply to keep them safe. Our instinct is what we want more than anything is just to protect them and keep them safe. What he said he realized is that ultimately what we want, even more than for them to simply be safe, is for them to ultimately turn to God. That's what we want more than anything, is for them to turn to God. And so he wrote this song, and the chorus says this. He sings this to his son. <clears throat> so I pray with all my heart that you would be broken, and in brokenness find God. Yes, I pray that you would fall, and falling down, you'll stand up to rise above it all. I pray that God would break you as you grow. Thought you should know. 
he realizes that sometimes we've got to hit rock bottom before we get to that place where we'll really cry out to God. And so we look at this passage and we say, what is God doing? But I think in reality, in the end, what he's doing is he's doing them a favor. He's helping them to realize, look, I'm your only source of hope. So they hit rock bottom and, of course, what happens? They, They cry out to him. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. You see, what you find throughout the Bible is that when you cry out to God, he comes to your aid. That at the very heart of who our God is, is that he is a God who seeks to rescue us. We talked about this last week, that the name Jesus, it just means the one who saves that at the very core of, of God's identity, the very heart of who he is, is the one, the one who saves. That even the divine name itself, the divine name itself, a, a word that in Hebrew is, seems to be derived from the word that simply means to be. And, and so we, we think of it as he is the God who simply is. He simply is. And that's certainly true. But as a number of Old Testament scholars have pointed out, uh, when this name is given to Moses... It is given within the context of him saying, I'm a God who's going to save you. I'm a God who's going to deliver my people. And in fact, as you go through the Bible and you see the divine name, more often than not, it is used in this context of referring to him as a God who saves. And so Elmer Martins, one Old Testament scholar, says that if you ask the ancient people of Israel who their God was, they would simply say, he is the God who saves The very heart of who our God is a God who longs to rescue us. If only we will cry out to him. And so no matter what situation you are in right here today, the promise is that if you will cry out to God, he will deliver you. We don't know what that deliverance will look like. It often doesn't look like what we think it should look like. In fact, oftentimes deliverance that God brings us often looks like captivity. This is something that my wife and I have seen in our own lives, that there have been times when it felt like God was taking us into captivity, and we didn't realize he was actually bringing us into a place of deliverance. We don't always know what it's going to look like, but at the heart of who our God is, is that if we cry out to him, he will rescue us. So they cry out, he raises up Othniel and Caleb's younger brother who saved them, the Spirit of the Lord it came upon them so that he, he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Right? It sounds like a beautiful Hollywood ending. Right? All you need to do is get Chris Hemsworth or Hugh Jackman to play Othniel. Right? You could probably make a lot of money out of the story. Right? Just roll the credits, that's it, happy ending. Well, not quite. Then in verse 12, Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Oops, I did it again. This is what we find throughout the people of Israel as you read through 
the book of Judges, this is just this cycle that goes over and over and over again. Things are going well for the people of Israel, so they forget about God. They turn away from God. They turn to things that ultimately won't lead to life. Uh, So then they end up sent into captivity. They cry out to God, and he rescues them. But then after he rescues them, well, they forget, and they just go back to doing the same thing over and over again. Oops, I did it again. That's Britney Spears, by the way, if anybody knows. I didn't come up with that phrase. How often do we find this happening in our own lives? How often do we find ourselves, something in our lives that we're dealing with, we're struggling with, some particular pattern in our lives, perhaps, that we are dealing with? Maybe it's anger or something like that. And you're like, God, I really need to work on my anger. God, help me with this. And and, and, and so God comes and helps you and delivers you from that, and you find yourself doing well. But then a year later, five years later, ten years later, you find yourself slipping right back into the same pattern. You find yourself slipping right back into the same habits over and over and over again. And the question is, is there anything that we can do about this? Or are we, are we forever to be like the, like the people of Israel in the book of Judges where it just goes round and round and round and we keep crying out, oops, I did it again. Well, there's a clue in verse 11. The land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenez, died. So it seems, as you read through the book of Judges, that as long as the judge was alive, then things would go pretty well. But after the judge died, then things would start to fall apart. And so then you find this phrase that emerges throughout the book of Judges, and in fact, the very last line of the book of Judges just drives this home, and it simply says this. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You see, the book of Judges is is highlighting this reality that the people of Israel, you see, they they needed a leader who was always going to be there. They needed a king who wasn't going to be here for a few years and then die. They needed a king who was eternal. The very heart of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, we finally have After the book of Judges, of course, came the kingdom of Saul and then the the Davidic kingdom. The people of Israel, they wanted a king. They thought this would work. Um, But, of course, as we know it, it didn't work. And and David died and they all died and everything kind of fell apart. But even in those early years, there was this prophecy that said, I will raise up the ultimate king, David, the true king, David, and he will have a kingdom which never ends. And as we have seen, as we've looked at Jesus in different passages, he's coming saying, I am the Messiah. I am that king. And with Easter Sunday, we see that he is the king that never dies, that he is always here and he will always be with us. When I was living in Massachusetts going to seminary, I had another friend and and we would, I had two friends, actually, it was great. And this friend of mine, we would, we, we would go driving wherever we were going. Uh, we would get in these conversations, these really deep conversations. Seminary students, they just start talking about all this deep stuff all the time. 
And I remember getting into these conversations with him, and I would always get distracted, and I would forget where I was going. And for some reason, we lived in Massachusetts, we would always end up in New Hampshire. I don't know why, but we would just drive, and before we'd realize, we realize oh my gosh, we're, we're in New Hampshire. And I, I saw enough New Hampshire license plates to recognize what the state motto of New Hampshire is. The state motto is, or at least it says on the license plate, live free or die. Live free or die. It was coined by General John Stark, who was a general in the Revolutionary War. And it captures a very American sentiment. And it's simply this. We don't like the idea of a king. We don't want to be subject to a king. We've had bad experiences with kings. We don't want to have anything to do with a king. But I think that the irony is, is that the very reason why we are so suspicious of a king who would rule over all things is also the same reason, ultimately, why we so desperately need a king. The reason why we don't want to have a king ruling over us is because we don't trust anybody. Humanity's arrogance, our insecurity, our selfishness, our inability, we don't trust anybody to rule Over us, the truth is, would we really even trust ourselves? This is the whole point. For the very same reason that you can't have a king ruling over all people is the same reason we can't even rule our own lives. Of course, this is one of the tremendous insights which the New Testament brings to us. It says that if you want freedom, ultimate freedom, true freedom is not even necessarily freedom from external outside control and authority that ultimately what you need freedom from is from yourself. Ultimately, what you need freedom from is sin working in you, your own pride, your own insecurity, your own anger, your own bitterness, your own lust, your own selfishness. That's what has you in captivity. That's what you need to be freed from. And the heart of the gospel is that the only way you can be freed from that is actually to subject yourself to God. As Bob Dylan once said, you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The heart of the gospel is that true freedom is found when we realize we're going to serve somebody. It's either going to be sin working in us or it's going to be King Jesus himself. It's going to be God himself. The problem is is that so often we treat Jesus only as our Savior and not as our King. So as a Savior, we we treat Jesus more like a a fire extinguisher, which which sits in in a glass-enclosed case on the wall. You don't even notice it until the fire is burning down. Then you get it out and you put the fire out. But to surrender to Jesus as King is to say every moment, every second, I'm going to take every area of my life. And even if it doesn't seem like this is going to lead to freedom, I trust in this God. Why can I trust in this king? You see, why can we trust in Jesus? We don't trust in any kings. Why? Because at the heart of who our king is, is a king who gave his life for us. This is the uniqueness of Christianity. You don't find this in any other religion, any other God who at the very core of who he is, is one who gives himself for us. You see, this is a king you can trust. My question for you today is, what areas of your life do you need to submit to Jesus and find freedom? Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you 
that you have not just left us here to go round and round and round and round. That the sins of our past can end. That we can have victory. That we can find freedom. If we will just surrender ourselves to you. God, I pray for humility. God, I pray that we would not be so arrogant as to think that we can be in control of our lives. That we can be king of our own lives. Lord, help us to see there is no freedom in that. And that we would surrender everything to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.